In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. The text for our meditation this evening is recorded in John's Gospel in chapter 6, verses 66 through 68. There we read, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, it's become a, a sad reality in our culture, in our country, that each and every day throughout our country, marriages are ending in divorce. Per, present statistics say that about 50% or more of marriages end that way in our country today. Now, if you are an observer of culture, there are some pretty easy and obvious reasons as to why that happens. But think beyond those surface answers for a moment and ask the question, why? Why are over half of married couples in our country calling it quits? What causes them to go back on the promise that they made to each other. Because when you think about how a marriage starts, that's what comes to mind, isn't it? A beautiful day where a man and woman stood before an altar in a church and made promises to each other. They exchanged rings and looked each other in the eye and promised to love and cherish each other in sickness, in poverty, in the bad times, as well as in the good. And they made that promise until death separated them. So what is it that leads them to quit? What happened to those happy days? What takes a person, a couple, from that emotional high point of their marriage day to the lows of divorce? What is it that drives them apart? How many disagreements and arguments does it take? How much selfishness or alcohol or drugs or abuse or neglect? As a pastor, I've seen that scenario play out way more than I ever wanted to. But it's not just in the congregations I've served. It happens to my friends. It's happened to family members. You see it on the news. It's everywhere. You can't ignore it. Jesus often used the image of marriage to describe his relationship to the church. In the analogy, he's the groom and the church is his bride. So if that's the case, and so many earthly couples are quitting, what does that say about our relationship to the church's groom, Jesus? That makes it an even more important question to think about. Why does this happen? What makes us quit or want to quit? Jesus inspired excitement at the, the beginning of his ministry. At the beginning, people were flocking from all over the place to come and see him, to see what he would do, to hear him teach, to hear this new teaching, they called it. He taught with authority and power. And they loved him. And the crowd grew and grew and grew. 
But then when Jesus started talking about carrying your cross to follow him, and he said things like, whoever doesn't hate his father and mother, his brother and sister, isn't worthy of being my disciple, that I quit attitude came out nice and strong. The verses that we are focusing on this evening from John's Gospel, they come from a time in the last year of Jesus' life on earth. They come from a time after the crowds had already been following him, and these particular verses in John chapter 6, they come just following what you might call the uh, emotional high amongst the crowd that followed Jesus. They're just after the point when the crowd was the most in love with Jesus they ever were. Because John chapter 6 comes right after one of Jesus' greatest miracles where he feeds 5,000 men and their families with a small boy's lunch. And after the people see Jesus do that, they are absolutely in love with him. They are so enamored with what he had done by providing this miraculous meal and satisfying them. They're so in love with him that they start to talk about making him their king. They even start to talk about taking him by force to make him their king. And remember, too, these are the children of Israel who are talking about this. The ones who have the promises of the Old Testament. The ones who had been in the inspired word of God, the prophets' writings, the ones who had been with them all along, hearing the, the promise passed down from generation to generation. These are the same people who now want to take Jesus and force him to be an earthly king. How did that happen? It's tragic, isn't it? Because the expectations of their Savior had changed so drastically. The prophets were clear. God would send a Savior who would take away the sins of the world. And there were a whole lot of other blessings that he promised as well. But that was the main promise. A Savior from sin who would conquer death and give eternal life. But the people only wanted a king who would satisfy their earthly needs now. They'd been led astray. They'd been led astray by the spiritual leaders of Israel. And you might ask how they were led astray. Well, an enemy was at work, quite obviously. The old evil foe had been at work. Satan had convinced the spiritual leaders to give up on Jesus. That they had gone so long without seeing the fulfillment of those promises, they must not be true. Satan had convinced the spiritual leaders of Israel to give up on Jesus, to believe that he couldn't be who he said he was. And the best they could hope for now was an earthly king who would heal their sicknesses, who would provide food for them, and ultimately, they hoped would throw out the Romans who they hated that were ruling over them. That day, though, Jesus resisted their efforts to make him a king. He knew what they were planning. And he got away for a little bit. He got in a boat with his 12 disciples, his closest group. And they went across the Sea of Galilee to get away from this huge crowd that was talking about seizing Jesus and making him a king by force. But the next day, the crowd found him again. They traveled across the lake as well, 
And they found Jesus and they had some more questions for him. Naturally, again, the subject turned to bread. And in John chapter 6, we have the longest speech recorded that Jesus gave. Sometimes it's called the bread of life discourse. And it's in John chapter 6 in that discourse or that speech where Jesus talks about bread. He says that he's the bread of life and that whoever comes to him will never go hungry and whoever believes in him will never be thirsty. He tells the people that he has bread to offer, just not the kind of bread they're expecting. But the bread that Jesus had to offer, the bread that he told them about, was so different from what they were expecting that the people didn't want to hear it. When they heard Jesus talk about this bread of life from heaven that would satisfy their hunger forever, they thought it was too good to be true. And they were only concerned with bread for the moment, bread to satisfy their stomach, bread that would meet their immediate needs. If you'd been there that day, I bet you could feel the mood change in that crowd like air out of a balloon. It's like I said, the emotional high point is right before our verses that I read a moment ago. It all comes crashing down when Jesus makes it very clear that he's not going to offer what they want. He's not going to be an earthly king who provides unlimited food. He has bread to offer, but it's the bread of life from heaven. And the people are deflated by that. The mood changes quickly. And those people that were about to seize Jesus and, and make him a king, they quit. They turn around and they leave. They go home. They don't follow Jesus anymore. That huge crowd that had been absolutely in love with Jesus doesn't want anything to do with him anymore. They don't want to follow him. They don't want to hear him. They don't want to see him. And they leave. But it wasn't just the, the big crowd that left. Jesus had a group of disciples that he was training. More than the 12, a bigger group of students he was training to be ministers of the gospel and preach the good news throughout the Galilee. And they quit. When they heard Jesus talk about the bread of life and how different it was from what they were expecting, they began to say, well, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And they decided they couldn't. And they quit and left. And it's right there at that point that you get to our sermon text for this evening. It's in that context that, that Jesus turns to his disciples, his 12, his closest group, and he says to them, you don't want to leave me too, do you? It's hard to believe that some of Jesus' disciples would quit, isn't it? They were the ones who had been with him all that time. They had walked countless miles next to him. They had spent nights out in the wilderness sleeping on the ground with him. They had sat at the dinner table across from him and looked in his eyes. And none of that made them immune to the temptation to quit. So if it didn't make them immune to that temptation, what chance do we have who don't have all those advantages they had of seeing Jesus face to face, of walking with him, of seeing him perform miracles? How are we going to fight the temptation to quit? They were in the presence of the Savior, the promised Savior from of old, 
who was preparing for the greatest spiritual battle of all time on a hill called Calvary outside Jerusalem. And Jesus was preparing his troops for battle. He was preparing them to carry on the fight after he was gone because he knew in that battle he was going to lose his life. And in the midst of that, his troops quit. They left him. The old evil foe had gotten to their hearts and their minds. First, he had gotten to the hearts and minds of the Jewish leaders who then spread this false teaching that Jesus couldn't be who he said he was or that the people didn't need who Jesus said he was. The leaders spread that false teaching that somehow you could get to heaven on your own. That you could work that out yourself. Your real needs were right here and right now. What you really needed was a good king. One who could give you a free meal now and then. And you could work out that eternity stuff between you and God later on. So You see the, the false teaching here that Jesus had to fight. And why he fights so strongly. You can see the powerful forces that he's fighting against Satan himself is at work amongst the people, turning them against Jesus, convincing the people that they don't need Jesus, that they don't need what he has to offer. How will we fight back? How will we, 2,000 years later, who still are tempted in the same way, tempted to quit and give up, how will we fight back? Because Satan still hates Jesus today just as much as ever. He still fights our Savior every chance he gets. He encourages the lost to grow further away from their Lord, to keep wandering deeper and deeper, making their separation from God even further. He does that by establishing an ever-increasing number of false religions. But every false religion has one thing in common. It puts something else in God's place. It tells the lie that you don't need what Jesus has to offer when in fact, what Jesus offers is the one thing we need the most. But it's not just the lost and the wandering that Satan attacks. He attacks us. He attacks the Christian church and he does that by spreading false teaching just like he did back in Jesus' day. He spreads false teaching. He uses critics of Scripture in the media and in politics, to question whether Jesus really is who he says he is. Whether we really are sinful and need what Jesus promises to give. He does that because he wants to take as many of you with him as he can. Satan is kind of like a terrorist that's been cornered. He knows there's no real victory in it for him. His only hope is to take as many with him as he can. And he will try and try again to drive a wedge between you and your Savior to convince you you don't need Jesus, to get you to quit on your Lord. I'm sure you all know someone who has fallen victim to Satan's attacks. Maybe they once were even a member of your own congregation. Perhaps one day they stood here before the altar and promised to be faithful to their Lord, even if it meant dying to do so. But when the going got tough, the I quit attitude came out again. And the emotional high, the enthusiasm of those confirmation vows disappeared. 
Maybe you know someone close to you who's slipping or has lost their faith. We all struggle with doubt as well. God says some pretty unbelievable things in his word, rationally speaking. And Satan uses that to get us to doubt him, to question whether God means what he says, if his word is true. And just when you think you've silenced that doubt, it has a way of coming back again. So you can understand Jesus then when he turns to his disciples, knowing all of that and says, are you going to leave me too? Do you want to leave? Now if you know your Bible, it shouldn't surprise you that Simon Peter's the first one to reply. And you always kind of cringe when that happens, right? Because you never know if Peter's going to stick his foot in his mouth or if he's going to hit the nail right on the head. But I love his answer in John chapter 6 to that question because he hits it right on the head. And his answer, it's not an emotional answer. I'm sure he was excited when he said it. But think about what Peter is saying in response to that question. Jesus asks, are you going to leave? And Peter gives an honest evaluation of his options. He says, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter knew there wasn't anywhere else to go to find that. There was not any other reasonable way to answer Jesus' question other than Peter's answer. Any other answer was an emotional, short-sighted answer. Because there is no other place to go. There is no other place to go for the words of eternal life, for the bread of life, the bread that satisfies hunger for eternity. Peter said he knew right where to find it. Jesus had it in his word. You have the words of eternal life. Because God's word is powerful. At creation, when God spoke, he said, let there be, and there was. There were lions and tigers, trees, fish, birds, all kinds of stuff. More things than we will ever discover God created with his word, saying, let there be. And he didn't just create it. It was good and perfect. All of it by his word. There's a passage in Romans where Paul says that faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. The word is powerful. Now, only God knows how many believing Christians there are in this world but I know one thing about each and every one of them, including you. None of us did a single thing to create believing faith in our hearts. The Word did it. The all-powerful, only place to find salvation. The Word of God. That's what brought you and me to trust that the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior has paid for our sins. The Word is what brought us here this evening to gather together to hear the Word, to hear about our Savior and the great things He's done for us. So you can see why Jesus fought those false teachers so hard. He had the one thing the people needed. He had the words of eternal life. The very thing 
that would keep them from quitting. He told his disciples another time, watch out for false prophets, for those false teachers who tell you you don't need what Jesus has. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. Those false teachers continue to oppose Jesus today. Your enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a lion waiting for doubt to make you weak. Waiting for the seeds of doubt he's planted throughout the years to spring and blossom and give him an opening to drive you away from your Lord. To give up on your Savior. Peter and the others were blessed and they didn't want to lose what Jesus had given them. They didn't want to quit. We also are blessed because you and I stand before the throne of God washed in the blood of the Lamb of God. We're forgiven. We have eternal life. We know where to find it. We know there's no other place to find it. Each and every day we're challenged, though, by Satan. Challenged to hold on to those words. Challenged to quit on our Savior. And it's a pretty floody, steady flood of temptation that we deal with. It keeps coming and coming and coming again and again. And it never quits. Not in this life. So when Satan and those whom he sends start telling you to give up on Jesus, start whispering in your ear that you don't need what he has to offer, that he doesn't meet your needs, tell Satan exactly what Peter said. Where else am I going to go? Jesus is the only way. The only one who has the words of eternal life. There's no other place to go. No other name under heaven by which man must be saved. Jesus is the only one. The only one that gives what we truly need. So don't quit. Don't give up. Trust your Lord. And trust the promises you find in his word. Amen.